Las Vegas is a city that sprung out the desert thanks to millions of people flocking to the siren song of Lady Luck. Ever since the early 30s, the city's unique selling point has been legal gambling. And today, the city of Vice still offers people like me a vacation experience unmatched anywhere in the world. Fast money, fast women, fast weddings, free drinks. But of course, there is life beyond the casinos. There's an urban sprawl which is undergoing changes that are shaping the city's future. I've come here off-season, it's freezing, to try to escape the hordes of tourists and focus on local life. Charleston Boulevard, also known as State Route 159, is a 31-mile highway running east to west through southern Nevada. And in this episode of Streets by Vice, it will serve as the conduit for my colorful history lesson on the city of Sin. Charleston Boulevard, as you splay off of it, uh, kind of shows you how Las Vegas is. In a way, the beginning and end of Charleston Boulevard is all of our history. The first people to settle this area were Native American. If you're going to talk about Euro-American settlers, really the first ones were Mormons from Salt Lake City who came here in 1855 and built a mission the Mormon population here is well into the six figures. Las Vegas ended up with a temple there in Frenchman Mountain. If you drive all the way up Charleston Boulevard from west to east, the landscape completely changes as you get to the end. It becomes more residential, it's quieter, and you start to notice these like white peaks dotted around the landscape, which are actually Mormon churches. And then you get up here, right to the top, where there's these amazing mountains, and you're confronted with this great big structure, which is basically the Mac Daddy of Mormon churches. It's a temple. Everybody who knows Las Vegas history, including the casino and hotel owners, knows that the Mormon people are part of the community. It's responsible for the explosion of Las Vegas as a, as a true city. Years ago, Parry Thomas, the banker, came here with fellow Mormon bankers, and played a crucial role in the development of the area, lending money to casinos. You could not get a bank loan if you were in the casino business. And it was because elsewhere it had been illegal. And it was known in many cases to be connected to the mob. The irony is the Mormon church opposes gambling. And Parry Thomas once was asked, how can you lend money to gangsters? And his answers essentially went like this. If you treat a person right, he'll treat you right and their bank was amazingly successful. If you had to imagine that the Mormons had never had a place in Vegas and had never been there at the beginning, how do you think Vegas would be different today? Uh, Las Vegas would be probably a truck stop. There are Mormons who say there wouldn't be a Las Vegas without them. There are mobsters or people connected to the mob from the old days who say there wouldn't be a Las Vegas without them. And the answer is yes. The unlikely alliance of the mobsters and the Mormons laid the foundations for Sin City as we know it. You can't talk about the history of Vegas without talking about the mob. And when people talk about the mob here, they're usually referring to the infamous Chicago outfit, who were immortalized in Scorsese's casino. The Chicago outfit is an Italian-American crime syndicate based in Chicago, Illinois. 
that moved out to Las Vegas in the 30s to take control of the casinos. It was their shady dealings and criminal activity which laid the groundwork for the city as we know it to grow. There's not too many of those guys left standing, but of those who are is a gentleman named Tony Montana. Yeah, that's his real name. Tony Montana spent the early 70s working for notorious Las Vegas gangster, Anthony Spilotro, who was played by Joe Pesci in Casino. Tony served as Spilotro's main driver, as well as managing his money laundering sites throughout the city. Tony picked me up on the strip for a drive down Charleston Boulevard. Tell me about Tony. Was he anything like Joe Pesci? Joe Pesci touched on it, but he didn't get into it. He killed almost 40 people. Whoa. It's, I went to jail before they got him. They got me before they got him. The FBI came to me. Do you know where Tony Spilantro is? I said, I sure don't. Here's, we don't know where he's at. We either think he got out of the country or he's dead. I said, I hope you got out of the country. That's what I told him. Then a couple days later, it was all over TV. The reputed leader of Las Vegas operations for the Chicago mob was found in a cornfield with his brother. Well, one day he told me, just before he got killed, Tony, if you, you know if you're with me and I get whacked, you're going to get whacked. So I hesitated for a few seconds. Yeah. And I looked at him, I said, Tony, is this a good time to ask for a raise? <laughs> did you get your raise? I did. The question is, you're making big money. So what do you do when you make big money? You try to save it. Yeah. Because, you know, there's going to come a day your hair turns gray. Times change overnight. They dropped me off at the long-standing Golden Gate Casino so I could try my luck on the slot machines. Let's not forget that Vegas is known as the gambling mecca of the world, with over 250 casinos to choose from. In 2015, the Strip alone raked in over $6 billion in gaming revenue, which is not surprising when the odds of hitting the jackpot on a standard machine is just one in 262,000 gambling, prostitution, the things that Las Vegas is famous for. They do have an effect on those of us who live here. Though the city prospers from legal gambling, the lure of the casinos can prove difficult for locals dealing with gambling addiction. Anthony McDew describes himself as a recovering gambling addict. His is an all too familiar story that affects about 6% of residents in a town that can make or break you. As a way to try to understand his addiction, Tony picked up a camera and began filming himself playing the slots and posted the videos online. His story spread to many news outlets, yet he still finds himself here in Vegas, renting a room by the week in the shadow of the Strip. When did you realize that the gambling was actually a problem? You know, when you start using bail money to um, gamble, that's when you know it's a problem. I lost my house, I lost uh, my cars, and I decided that my story was important. I play the slot machines. It's something in the psyche where you think, okay, you're gonna win, you're gonna win, you're gonna get hit it big one time, you're gonna hit it big. It's like a trap. But don't say, oh, come in, we got our, we're gonna give you some free slippers today. The freebies and the, the billboards, when you drive by and you say, oh, wow, win $10,000 or win 100,000, 100K. The way the casino system is set up, when you walk in, there's no clocks. There's no um, way of looking at time. Time goes by. I've been in there for five hours. Have you ever thought that maybe if gambling didn't exist, if it was illegal, for example? If it was illegal, yeah, I wouldn't have anything to do with it. 
And I think my life would have been uh, way different. It's said that the Las Vegas tourist industry was founded on two key ingredients, gambling, obviously, and prostitution. Nevada state law permits counties with a population below 700,000 to offer brothel prostitution. There are currently 19 legal brothels here. If you stay on Charleston Boulevard long enough and you drive all the way out of town into the desert, at some point you cross the county line and the law changes, which means that you can legally pay to have sex with somebody. So that's where all the brothels come in. We took a detour to the far west end of Charleston Boulevard, where you can find friendly establishments such as the Alien Cat House. This particular brothel is alien themed, and I'm gonna head inside and find out what goes on once you stop for gas and um, mark out some time to get it in. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm excited. <laughs> this is one of seven brothels owned by businessman Dennis Hoff. It's alien themed to reflect its proximity to Area 51. But it's unclear whether the girls here have actually ever knowingly serviced any extraterrestrials. You look great. Thank I feel you. so overdressed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll show you my room. So yeah, each one of us ladies, we get our own rooms. We can stay, watch your stuff. We can stay however long we like. So like a day or a week or? Well, because this is a smaller house, we're only licensed for five girls. So when you do come, you have to commit to at least two weeks. This is So this is my room. And look at all your tools. And these are mine, yeah. Edible body paints. Oh my God. Soft restraints, strap-ons, more hardcore restraints. Something for everyone. Yes. Most of the gentlemen who come in are very nervous at first. Once you can make somebody smile or laugh, you pretty much crack the ice. So it's kind of insane to me that in spite of everything that's on offer in Sin City, you still have to drive 100 miles into the desert to uh, pay for sex. And now that I'm done, I have to do the 100-mile walk of shame back to Vegas. Maybe the biggest misconception of Las Vegas is that there is a Las Vegas. It isn't just the Strip. It isn't just what the tourist sees. Las Vegas has to live with an image, whether or not the image is still true. Like any other city, Las Vegas is vulnerable to economic crisis. When you talk about the recession hitting Las Vegas, the Strip suffered. There's no question about it. But if you want to see the effects of the crash, I think you go through East Las Vegas. During the nationwide housing crash of 2008, Nevada had the highest foreclosure rate in the country. Over 67,000 properties faced this fate in Vegas. This is Main Street, which is right off Charleston Boulevard in downtown Las Vegas. I'm headed now to El Sombrero, a cafe just on the edge of the Huntridge neighborhood that has managed to survive the recession. It's been standing for 64 years. All right, come on, Chiquita. Let me put you to work a little bit here. Yeah, this wow. is our wonderful brisket that we use for our amazing brisket enchiladas. Am okay. I going to get to try some? You are. Grab some, and what you do is yeah. you just shred everything very, very finely. These are all of the little details that make 
Mexican food so delicious and spectacular. I know, and then I always have to cheat. We're gonna give, give a little bit to the chef. Chef, can you make some beef brisket enchiladas? Can, can you stop torturing me? Can we, can we go and eat it? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> let's give it a try. We're sitting in the oldest Mexican restaurant in Vegas history, actually Nevada history. Watermelon sangria. That Come is on. wicked. So what do you think is going to happen to, say, this stretch of the street? Uh, if you look outside our windows, you will see construction cones. And what is already happening on the south of Charleston on Main Street is a lot of entrepreneurs mm -hmm. are uh, coming and putting very quaint, very charming little bars, little coffee shops, restaurants, boutiques. The once barren downtown area is also showing signs of promising growth, thanks to new businesses outside of traditional Vegas industries. Tony Shea, the founder of online mega retailer Zappos, took a gamble investing $350 million into downtown Vegas, moving his headquarters into the former city hall building and revitalizing the neighborhood with affordable housing and offices for his 800 local employees, drawing in a new cash flow and 200 million visitors. I've managed to infiltrate the Airstream compound of Tony Shea and his colleagues. Tony Shea is concerned with building infrastructure for the locals as opposed to the tourists. One of the favorite things I love about Vegas is that there's the sense that anything is possible. We moved an entire company from San Francisco to Vegas because we wanted to build the Zappos brand to be about their very best customer service and Vegas is a service-focused town. It's 24-7. Why did you decide to embark on this regeneration of downtown? We wanted to build a permanent campus for Zappos and really help build a city that really catered to the entrepreneurs and artists and creative types. It was more about helping amplify that energy. I think that's that whole energy can be really contagious. Electric Daisy Carnival is an electronic dance music festival that moved from Los Angeles to Vegas in 2011. Since then, Vegas has been firmly on the map for its thriving EDM scene, with DJs from around the world flocking here to try to land a residency in some of the biggest clubs in the United States. DJ JCO is no stranger to the Vegas EDM scene and currently holds a residency at the Light Vegas at Mandalay Bay, just south of Charleston Boulevard. I would say that Vegas definitely, you know, was one of the first cities to really push the DJ as the rock star. You could kind of do anything you want. And I love that aspect because I like to DJ kind of like off the cuff and kind of freestyle my sets and read a room. So it's like playing electronic music is very rewarding in that way. The Vegas crowd is here to, to turn up, essentially, you know, they're here to blow money, they're here to dress up, they're here to impress girls, they're here to party. The fact that there's so much money in Vegas, and the casinos are willing to throw huge money around to have these guys' names and bring them in week in and week out, so it's made Las Vegas such a hub for, for electronic music. When you play Vegas, you kind of gotta, gotta engage these people and keep them in the club and keep them spending money and buying bottles because at the end that's 
what these casinos and talent buyers want. That's why they're paying us all this money to fly us in and week in and week out is because they know that we're going to keep a crowd in there. Las Vegas is a city powered by an industry selling escapism to millions of tourists each year. But among the crowds are the residents who are part of the city's rich history. 